Welcome to an episode of the Product Coalition European Tour Copenhagen series, where today I'm very excited to be joined by Jaden Hanley and Helena Levison. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. You're my first first crew to chat to in Copenhagen, so I'm really <laughs> excited to, to kick off the Copenhagen series with yourselves. Now, before we get stuck in, I, I need to shout out about this tour because this episode and every single episode is dedicated to raising awareness and support for the bushfire-affected communities and wildlife in Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, please show your support for these amazing causes by visiting bushfire.productcoalition.com or to learn more about the European tour, visit tour.productcoalition.com. Now, I'm visiting five cities across Europe to interview over 50 product leaders to gain insights, knowledge and experience to share with you, the Product Coalition global community. If you just discovered Product Coalition, welcome. We're a global product community with over 500,000 readers, 6,000 Slack members and thousands of podcast listeners. Head to platform.productcoalition.com to find out some more. Now, before we do get stuck into the episode, I need to give a thanks to some businesses and individuals that have already made significant donations to the fundraiser. First up is UserPilot. UserPilot is a code-free user onboarding and adoption tool designed especially for product management teams. UserPilot helps to increase conversion, user retention rates and reduce churn by guiding new users to their first aha moment with interactive walkthroughs, contextual product tours and onboarding checklists. It allows product managers to build fully customizable, behavior-triggered in-app experiences with a simple visual editor. Head to userpilot.com to grab your demo and get a free trial. Shobit Chug is the intentional product manager. Shobit's a Google product manager and he helps product managers become product leaders and have careers they can be proud of. Head to intentionalproductmanager.com and sign up for Shobit's free class on the habits that turn product managers into exceptional product leaders and help them move through their careers fast. Product-led teams like Mixpanel and Flexport know that the best time to capture engagement is when a user is already inside the product. That's why they use Chameleon to drive feature adoption, build onboarding flows, and gather feedback. You can give it a go at trychameleon.com forward slash success. I'd also like to thank Rich Miranoff and Chris Miles as individual donors to the cause. So today we're going to be talking about how to understand a UX designer in your product team. Looking forward to chatting through with these guys. I don't know if you know, but I actually used to be a designer once upon a time. Oh. Before I was a product guy, uh, I was a designer. Um, so um, I'm really looking forward to chatting through. This yeah, I think topic. it's such a natural transition as well, like uh, UX and product owning. It just makes a lot of sense. Yeah, UX is in a lot of different roles. You know, yeah, marketing, sales. Yeah. You know, you're always getting feedback from users. So, and so many product managers come from like a BA or an engineering side. Yes. So I, yeah, I fly the designer flag <laughs> as much as I can at any given opportunity. Um, so before we jump into how to understand a UX designer in a product team, would you mind? sharing a little bit about yourselves and, and your own backgrounds and career paths to today. Yeah. Uh, well, Jane, I think you should start. Now, we just talked about Australia, and you are half Australian, half Danish, so... That is very true, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm Jaden. I, I came uh, to Copenhagen actually recently, um, the last year and a half. Um, my background is actually in educational game design. I was working for um, the largest uh, education or edutech company in Australia for uh, eight years, seven years, um, called 3P Learning. They made Mathletics. Right. Um, so yeah, got a lot of experience there, kind of coming out of high school and, and going into a big company like that and, and learning a lot along the way as I went. Um, and yeah, then I, I decided after leaving that job, cool, time to make a move. I'm half Danish. Let's go check out that side of my uh, heritage and uh, quickly started looking and, and reaching out for a UX community here. 
Um, and then met Helena, and now I'm co-founding CPHUX with her. Awesome. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, it's what an adventure. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool. Oh, cool. Helena? It's been, a, it's been a fun year. Yeah, so uh, I come, uh, I'm a f actually half Danish, half uh, from Uruguay. So it's a very untypical uh, background to have. Um, anyway, so I have a classic design degree from Culling Design School, which is one of the two university design schools in Denmark. Um, so it's very hard to get into and really, really awesome. But more a kind of conceptual approach and almost a bit artistic in what they do. And um, I worked a bit in, I think my heart has always been burning for the startup environment and and really, really strongly for UX when I found that that was actually a thing. I was just like, yes, this is my calling. Um, and then after being burned really, really badly at my first uh, design job, uh, I just really wanted to create something, a community, to try to avoid other people getting in the same situation as I did. So uh, then... CPHUX, so which is short for Copenhagen User Experience, is not Denmark's largest UX community, but actually started as my master project, being able right, to okay. dive into people and the research and like yeah, see what was happening in Copenhagen today, and definitely feeling a need from the designers in the community. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, congratulations on building a community. Mm. Always like like to hear that. Um, how have you? found that experience in itself of, of building and bringing people together? Oh, it's, uh, it, 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 so it, it, it always, like I think every startup or any community always has a, a identity crisis a path into it and it's super hard to make a living from building a community but it started actually with me starting Ladies.UX uh, after being okay. a part of it in, in Vancouver where I lived for a year and a half and then, then just seeing that there was this need for more from the community than just a monthly meetup. Uh, back then, we also had it only for women, um, which makes sense coming from Canada. North America have more bureaucracy and more there's more discrimination towards women. But like it was a really nice discovery in Denmark that there is actually not that need for it. Uh, it's it's way more equal mm -hmm. uh, the society mm -hmm. and the workplaces as well. So that was just a nice like mm -hmm. <laughs> eye-opener. Um, so it started from there, then it grew out from it, and then again I started doing it as my master project and then just continuously like doing it as a for a long time as a passion, passion, ugh, as a passion project. Mm. Um, and then I did a talent academy trying to help young designers who are like perhaps lacking a bit of a professional confidence. Like So I did a two-week boot camp with right. them, like really upskilling them and just making them believe nice. in themselves. And then we got the opportunity to open a co-working space and with that the whole membership and just going full on for it. And then mm. I think I started that in January 2019 mm. and then you joined as co-founder in November 19. So, yeah. yeah. So I've definitely come at a later point in the, the community was already built at that point. That's what attracted me to it because I started and, and saw that community coming to the country. Um, right. And, and I could see, like, the quality and the people and the passion and just, you know, w really, like, Helena's personality really built into this community, this welcoming and approachable <laughs> kind of person. So, um, yeah, I felt, like, really attracted to it. Um, and now I've just, yeah, been helping out with uh, more around, like, business development and, and bringing my product design uh, skills from uh, Australia to try and bringing in road mapping and structure and task managing and just having clear direction. Right. Um, yeah. So it's been, it's been a good kind of back and forth. Yeah. 
I think yeah, it's funny because I, I call myself, it's actually, was the name that was given to me, but like the queen of UX and not at all saying that I'm not by far the best UX designer in Copenhagen, but I'm really, really actively trying to make a difference for the ecosystem in in Copenhagen. And, and obviously what our vision for CPHX is to create an international society where you would be able to like tune into a city and understand what is the ecosystem here and what companies are here, what are people looking at and all this. Nice, nice. Is Copenhagen the center for pretty much everything community-wise in, in UX or, or business? Any of the other, other towns or cities in, in, in Denmark? Denmark, uh, Denmark, I mean, it's not like a huge country, right? So I think we have uh, Aarhus and we have Odense and Aalborg as well, like right. three other cities. But you can definitely feel that the UX majority of those cities are not following. Um, and I don't think you see you see a startup growth in Aarhus and Aalborg, uh, but not as much in Odense. Odense is more of a robotic city and a very, very strong student city, university city. Right. Um, so... I, we, we've talked about it, and Aarhus, which is the second largest city in, in Denmark, would definitely not be our next step right. because there's simply not enough going on from the UX community for it to make sense for us. Mm. Right. We would look at big cities like uh, Berlin or yeah. Stockholm or, or London, Barcelona. Yeah. Barcelona. Right. Yeah. Are, are there certain cities in Denmark that are are known for a particular history or their contribution to industry, such as um, I'm thinking Geelong in Australia. It's a big car manufacturing sort of town mm. there. Is, is that the same with Danish towns? They're sort of specialist industries? Mm, it serve with the robotics. Um, right. that's, that's kind of the clearest one for me. Uh, I wouldn't say... No, I don't think that the other cities kind of claim. Then we have SPR, which have like, which is a very strong harbor city, but that's more for like people in the maritime industry, right? So it's right. not really okay. UX designers. They're not. I don't. It's not my impression that they're technically as developed or a startup or. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Something that I didn't actually know when I first moved here was that Denmark is three islands. I literally did not know that. Oh, it's a mainland and two islands. Yeah, mainland and two islands, yeah. Right. And, <laughs> well, three separate parts of Denmark. Yeah, right. Right. And Copenhagen being on Schellen and then Odense being on Fyn and then Obo and uh, Aarhus on Jylland, which is connected to Germany. Right. And just, uh, I was living when I first moved here outside of Copenhagen in a city called Roskilde. Right. Um, and was not getting the vibe, right? Was not seeing any events, like it just, it was just like a, a nice little town that has all the things you need to live, right? Right, okay. Um, and then I saw everything happening in Copenhagen. I was, I was taking the train for 45 minutes to get to the event <laughs> and then be there and then take it home. And, uh, and then eventually I was like, yeah, I have to move to Copenhagen. You can know, can I ask, happening. was you pronouncing the city names as well as you are now when you first arrived? No. <laughs> no. no. We've been practicing a lot. I, I couldn't say the, the three additional uh, alphabetic words in... Right, in okay. Denmark, like e, u, o. Yeah, yeah, we have three extra yeah. letters extra in Danish. Letters. Yeah. That are e, u, o. Yeah. That is really hard for people to pronounce. I couldn't do, do it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now it just comes out. I'm like, I've that's... that's well, that's why I asked. You yeah. just rattled off those city names as if... I could just come naturally. Then you have to have some yes. genetics and Danish genetics yeah, going yeah. on. Yeah, the tongue is just like, oh, this is natural, you know. <laughs> cool. 
Cool, cool. All right, let, let, let's get stuck into talking about UXs um, in product now. Um, I know you guys focus a lot on um, skills and competencies and mindsets, and you've got a, a bit of a, a model um, around that. Um, what, what is the mindset model um, mm. for you when it comes to um, successful UX? Yeah, so the four mindset model or the RCAD model is a model that I developed because I was seeing a, a need for something to communicate better. And all the models that I was seeing, design thinking models and these type of things are great, but it was just really hard for people to really relate to them on a professional level. Um, and it's actually, it's not about skills and competencies. It's very much about the mindsets because I do believe in this time and age where the internet is just making so many, like, so much knowledge accessible. Uh, it's easy to build up competencies and skill sets quite fast. If you, I, I have never touched Sketch before, but if I wanted to, I could sit down for a week and I would be a fucking expert in Sketch. It wouldn't be that hard. So there's no reason to get so caught up in all the skills because they're easy to acquire. Mm-hmm. What is interesting is the way that people think because our mindsets are really, really hard to change and really hard to learn. And, and so I came up with this model. Um, again, imagine an umbrella, because like UX is really an umbrella term covering a lot of different things you can specialize within and a lot of different focuses. So the, the umbrella is divided into four parts. The first one are, is for research. And these are, this is the mindset where people are really opening up and they're being curious and they want to know and they're like they're fine sitting and observing and interviewing and spending a lot of time. Jane, just feel free to add to it if you... Yeah, I mean, they're also great at um, like crafting those questions to ask as well. Like right. what, is, what is the purpose for us going out and, and, and researching and, and really find passion and drive in, in finding those patterns from analysing all of those, those things. Yeah, yeah. The next one is a C for concept or conceptualizing. And these are the guys who kind of take the insights that the researchers have found mm. and then they'll take these insights and turn it into something tangible. Mm. And this can be a strategy, it could be a prototype, it could be a service. It's not defined what that is per se, but it's just a matter of taking something intangible and making it mm. tangible. They're also quite good, like high-level thinkers, like able to be out there and like working with a lot of ideas. Um, you know, taking in uh, business needs from stake- key stakeholders in the company, also technical constraints from the development department, and and also balancing that with the user needs that come through the research and going, okay, all of these things converging together. What does that mean? A solution looks like, right? And as Helena said sketches and prototypes and whatever they whatever tools they need to express it okay basically then there's a for aesthetics and these are usually when we talk about ux we talk about interfaces right and we talk about the ui what people see when they open a website or an app um and and these guys can just get like super nerdy and just sit and pixel push and it just needs to be perfect and experiment with the right colors but it was funny because jane and i actually talked about it and like content writing and ux writing is definitely something that we see falling under aesthetics as well because it's that care for how are people going to understand it Mm. yeah and uh yeah it's someone that on the visual side um i can describe as like Someone that's very, um, they, they, they know these design patterns that you see um, on a lot of websites, like the back button has to be up the top left, or this font complements that font, and this color complements that color, and that will draw people's eyes. And 
it's another kind of specialization of how to think about a layout, right? right. Yeah. Then the last one uh, is the T for technical. Right. And it shouldn't be confused with a developer or an engineer, um, the, but the technical designer will usually be able to code a bit. They will be able to make uh, design libraries with like code components that the developers then will work from. Uh, so they have a more systematic and technical approach mm -hmm. to things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so they have um, usually would have uh, some kind of experience or um, draw towards working in a product team, right, and understanding how development works. So they can take from that big pipeline of, of events that we just described and represent that with the development team, right, like representing the, the user needs and, and making sure it's communicated well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so... so That's four mindsets. Yeah. Yep. And of course, every designer has dipped their toes in all mm. four of them. Mm -hmm. So there's there's nothing wrong saying we can work within f all four, but the, the, the normal designer will have two of these mindsets that they prefer to work within. And, and, and then there's, again, where do you, you might have a strength in aesthetics, but you actually really want to focus on the research. And this is, again, a way to make sure that your employees are performing the place where they're actually inspired and mm. they feel like they can really move. Yeah. On top of the RCAD model, we kind of have like a mid-level, which is called uh, management. Because you can be on all four mindsets, but you can still like, there's the people who just want to execute their entire life and that there's nothing wrong with this, but then there's the people who wants to become leaders and they want to manage other people and they do have another mindset Which is again, mm. yeah, it's just important. Do you want to be a leader or do you not want to be a leader? Mm. Because again, you need to make sure that people get hired for the right roles. Yeah. Managing those different types of mindsets, mm. what, what does a good leader look like? Would they typically come from, say, if you've got a strong technical based mm. UX team, let's say, because that's the needs of the type of business you're in, mm. um, should the leader also? come from that sort of background or is it a flip and the opposite they bring a different way wouldn't to it be lovely if there was <laughs> just one answer i think that very much depends on the team uh, what do you have in your what is in your basket right mm. what, what what skills do you already have in your company mm. and that is super hard to it's it would be awesome to just say yeah this is the perfect combination but the point is that everything is affected by each other yeah so yeah yeah i think um It, really, it also really depends on the project, right? Um, often when I'm talking to companies, and um, this is the beauty of the RCAT model, it's almost, it, it's a universal language that we're using to, to match make, right? Um, and also just bring clarity around the, the industry that is quite immature here, right? And we're trying to raise it. Um, and uh, when I talk to companies, I ask them what project Their, what, where their project is at right now or what they're working on. And usually um, a, a project that is very new and establishing, like a very new direction or they're a startup and they're, they're building something for the first time, it's important to prioritize the, the early parts of those mindsets, like the research and the concepts, because as we described, that seems very important at early stages. And then uh, if a project's already existing and they've got users giving them feedback and they've got already a big functioning team, that's when, uh, you know, working with the technical and the aesthetics, it might just be a, a redesign or, you know, tweaking things is more of a requirement. So 
to answer your question around mm. leadership, uh, my, my suggestion would be around looking at the, pro the project you're working on. And then, yeah, sometimes you might just bring on a, a leader that might fill the gap, right, mm. if you're going in another direction. Or if you're just tweaking and, and, and your, most of your team is technical, mm -hmm. then it might be fine to just have a technical leader as well. Mm. Yeah. In, in my mind, it, um, this also sort of follows the double diamond mm. um, as well, like very research-driven over on the left mm. or very delivery-driven or technical focus yes. over on the right there. Um, for, for those that are in one of those four mm. groups right now mm. and would want to shift, what, what, what would you suggest as an approach of going about that? So, for instance, you talked about you could go and study a tool such as sketch and build up that, but how do you go deep on a mindset change? I think uh, the practicing your craft is the way to get into that. Mm. Um, and I think it's, it's going to be very clear to you if you like being in research, you need to have some patience, right? Mm. I personally struggle with that patience, so that's also why it will naturally not come to me to do mm. that. Uh, but we do see a lot of people who have uh, started with in the aesthetics, they've been visual graphic designers that then want to move more towards conceptualizing and, and the research area. And what I recommend is literally go to events. Is it too noisy? No, it's okay. Okay. Go to events, like be inspired, talk to other people who work in that field, listen to podcasts, do online courses, read books. Uh, again, try to have a conversation mm. with other people about what you read because the... the the mind shift, uh, mindset shift is not something that you can just do like with a whip of a wand, right? It's something that you have to put in a lot of energy mm. into and, and train yourself and, and again, hopefully feel inspired and yeah. passionate about that. Yeah. It should be where you're like, oh, I'm sucking it up because it's just so interesting. I just want to be here. Mm. Yeah, I think it's like, it's, it's a perspective thing, as you mm. said, right? Like... Um, as soon as you know about it or you're getting inspiration from books or the world in, in whatever way of reaching out. Um, for me personally, my I've done all of those areas, right? And I identify more with some than others. And it's just about doing, doing it and trying it. Um, and some people feel like, oh, that was good, but the business is telling me to be over here. And I think uh, what, I'd, what I hope we can do is by helping people identify with this model, they can sort of identify the experience that they've had and where they've had like the most passion um, because we then are, we ask them what are you good at now and where do you want to be or where have you had like mm. the best experience and then sometimes it's, it, more often than not it's actually they're not doing the things that they they want to do and it's, it's really interesting in um when i was in cardiff i actually talked on on this topic a little bit with peter swarif as a data science director and in in that space they obviously hire a lot of PhD or mm. master's graduates who come out of a strong research function because it's the educational world and they're coming out of that research-driven educational concept and moving then into their first data science job. Mm. And the world around them is shifted massively then from being given a lot of, afforded a lot of time mm -hmm. um, and space to work through the research side of their work and they have to shift and learn different mindsets pr pretty rapidly. Yeah. Do you see that, or have you found that with graduates in the UX or design space as well? 
I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, some of the volunteers we've had in, um, we were just talking about it the other day, um, finding this balance between being iterative and, and quick in business, right? Business is, is a fast-paced type of work. And as you said, coming from an academic uh, research background, then you're afforded a lot of time. And you have to be iterative with your research, basically, right? You have to, you can't, we can't afford to have three months of just hard research for like 100% confidence. Like we want you to do part A of that, be 100% confident so then we can iterate on the product like that and then do it again and do it again within that three months. So the, that ability to move fast. I suppose even if you're not 100% confident at yeah, some point. Yeah, as confident you're as you can You're using research be. to reduce the assumptions, but you're confident to still keep yeah. going with the assumptions. I think it's a general problem that the universities are, they're just not able to keep up with the professional industries. Mm. Um, so, so even though they're trying their best, they're still like a little bit behind. But and again, I want to say that I think that it's good to know how to do that extensive research mm. because then you know how to cut off. Mm. If you only know how to do the very, very brief and short, perhaps a bit superficial research, it's really hard to do those extensive things. Mm. And then uh, I did a podcast interview once with uh, Luba van Hagen, and she said, if you want to do research, you should be in fintech because they have the money to actually put into research being properly done. So it's also looking at what industry are you actually in and do they actually have the time and the, yeah. the money to do that, right? Mm. It's It's been interesting. Um, so when I first moved here, I, I was freelancing for a while and I was part-time helping out uh, Helena at CPHUX. And uh, I often had to uh, write you know contracts or proposals for companies I was freelancing with. And... Uh, in my old job, uh, a lot of the time, research was looked at as this thing that just would take such a long time and, oh, it's, it's expensive and we don't have the time for that. And then I realized as I'm writing out these proposals for companies, I'm quoting how much it's going to cost. And you look at the development cost and you look at the cost and the time it takes to do the research and the concept and like early design. And it's, it's so much cheaper to do that early design. Yes, it takes six weeks or whatever, and that six weeks could be development, but that developer costs a bunch of money, right? Yeah. Um, so you want to be confident, right? So th there's this, there's a little bit of a, um, I don't know why there's such an anxiety around research sometimes as well, right? Like it's it's going to save you money if yeah. you're not making it's this. Patience. Yeah. It's patience. It's yeah. the art of patience. People yeah. want to be doing and building and yeah. showcasing. Yeah, and learning. maybe it's a communication factor of like, look at this value yeah, from a business perspective that isn't isn't well communicated from from researchers or something. But yeah, having a more holistic sort of um, pitch could probably help. Yeah. There are obviously industries where research just naturally is given mm. more respect. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, they're typically not just software development for retail consumer spaces yeah. um, it's normally in that uh, science functions or high risk industries where everything has to be exact and you, you can't be afforded any risk um, the the ux community nowadays is it still focused on the the retail side of building apps and websites and e-commerce experiences or is is there now a lot more attention on those sort of proprietary 
B2B software services um, that used to be clunky because it was more of a utility function than an experience. Uh, are you seeing an uplift there? I mean, that the, that's not really on the UX designers to choose, right? That's on based on the companies that are that are like thriving and the companies that are able to hire designers and actually acknowledge that that's a value. Um, I think we have a good variety of uh, really interesting things in mm. Copenhagen. I think we're seeing some really innovative projects. I remember being in Vancouver and being in the very young startup environment and I was just like seeing a lot of those bullshit ideas where it was people who were just trying to make make a breakthrough and make some money and they didn't care about what they were actually building. Mm. And I think in Copenhagen we see a way stronger movement of people actually being very, very dedicated to what they're building. Um, and some of the bigger companies as well, right? They're doing these innovation labs and yeah. break-off things. So, no, I don't think that retail is actually not that large of a role in Copenhagen UX scene. Mm. Um, I think we're seeing more interesting advanced products coming out. Uh, I want to mention one, uh, if you don't mind. Please do. Uh, it's called Corti, and it's uh, it's this, uh, they're working with sound recognition, and when people are calling in to to report some person who's getting a cardiac arrest, then that software can actually analyze how people are talking and help the 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 healthcare provider that's on the phone giving them better advice. Wow. So, I mean, that's that's not just nice. off-the-shelf no, products, right? No. This is, like, really, really advanced on, and something that is really helping people make better choices. Mm. And I think that's, uh, personally, as a designer, I think that would be very fulfilling to have a job like that, but it, it depends on your values. Oh, there's a really cool app as well that I um, downloaded the other day for... Um, it's, like, a community to help blind people. Right. Yeah, be my eyes. Be my eyes. Yeah. 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 And uh, you're basically a, like you sign up for the app, and it's just in the background with notifications turned on, and people with seeing problems mm-hmm. are also on that app and can call for help, and then it will reach out to everyone that doesn't have seeing problems right. with a notification saying someone needs your help, and you go into a video call with them. And they're like, oh, like I had one guy so far. Yeah, right. He's like, oh, um, my shoes, are they? do they look in good wow. condition? I'm not sure. Like, should I throw them out or should I get some new ones? And wow. I was like, look, I would wear them. Like, they look great. Just give them a bit of leather polish and, you know, whatever. And he's like, oh, yeah, thanks. I That's think it was from America somewhere. Brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. And it's so much more useful yeah. than the wake-up alarm clock thing that was about <laughs> four years ago where, like, it told you if someone wanted waking up and give you a notification. So you then jumped on the phone and you was their alarm clock and they could hear you talking. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> That's, That's like, a much better no use of that technology, yeah. of using yeah. the crowd. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Oh, I wouldn't mind talking to you guys about... Um, the role of UX within a, a startup or a business versus the role of UX in an agency where the pressures and needs of having multiple clients, quite often tighter deadlines, mm. uh, maybe less creative freedom as well, can, can mean a completely different type of UX role. And obviously every agency will be different as with any um, client site business as well. But for those looking to move into UX, what are some of the pros and cons of going client side? versus agency i think both startups and agency are actually the two type of uh, companies where you have a lot of focus on speed 
I think that's actually one of the things that are similar to those two compared to working with government or working with in, in, in corporates. Yeah. Um, so, but obviously, when you work as an in-house designer, as a, you do in a startup, you're going to follow that product. You're going to see how it develops. You're going to be there for all the little small details. Whereas when you are in, in an agency, you're handing off, so you're never really seeing anything being finished. And you never, you never know. You might give the the client gold, and they'll turn it into trash because they're not treating, they're not understanding it correctly. Mm. So I think uh, that's what I'm hearing. The the pros and cons I'm hearing from the agency side is the cons is that you get so much variety. You get to do all these different things, and because you're also working in a very high paced environment, work environment. There's also a lot of parties and there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of uh, let's go uh, to a conference and like have fun and, and they have the budget to also just be like yeah like go do that um, whereas in uh, the startups uh, depending on the startups and if they're getting some like uh, funding and all this it can yeah. be can be a lot of hard work but again I think there's still like that camaraderie that you have with your team at least if you're in a decent startup where you're really like connecting and you can you can everybody is in on it everybody mm. wants to see this product succeed right mm. so you have a dedication that's just on a completely different level than when you're just being paid to do something yeah right there's something around startups that I want to say especially with the small ones like if you're coming into the industry as your first startup job as, as your first UX job like I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you would learn more in an agency because you'll be having other designers around you, right? And in a startup, you may be the only UX designer there, right? So you will have to lead yep. a lot of things mm. and, and, and do a lot of different roles as well. Yeah, I definitely would not necessarily, unless you're a very independent human being, mm. I don't I wouldn't suggest being in a startup as a junior because you're getting so much responsibility. And if you are, I would really recommend you to get a mentor. So somebody that you can bounce ideas off and just be like, should I do this? Or like, where should I go with that? And just share those frustrations with, because that, that was my mistake. I was a junior in a startup and everybody was looking at me as this both creative but also user, like guru. And I was just like, I don't know. Like, I'm just trying things that I really wanted to succeed, but I don't know. Um, and I wish that I would have had a mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, even a mentor would have given me so much more direction. Yeah, I've seen as well in startups the, the UX person, particularly if it's one, um, is used for anything and everything creative. Yeah. So they're also the person who does the sales collateral and the business card design. And so they're, the, the attention and time they really get to give the product is yeah. is really discounted quite heavily because everything else gets fr- thrown at them. Yeah. Like, You've got Photoshop, you can just do any yeah. any of yeah. these you use that tool. related yeah. tasks. Yeah, yeah and uh, uh, I, I really don't like the merged, you've probably seen it a lot, the merged... Um, position of uh, UX slash UI because mm-hmm. they're so different. Yeah. Like, there's similarities, but like the type of work you're doing is yeah, vastly different in a lot of ways. Someone's going to be much, like UI is much more pixel pushing and, mm-hmm. and pr- can probably help out with marketing, marketing collateral and, and business yeah. cards and, and redesigns and whatever. And then UX is like 
yeah, there's, it's more to it, way more to it. And you're trying to push those things together and end up probably giving them everything, right? A lot of the time I've seen the, the UX slash UI, yeah. when I've spoke to people that have applied or taken those jobs, yeah. it really means UI design. Yeah. Yeah. And if, yeah. we, if we get any yeah. spare time, we'll let you do some UX. Yeah. It's never the UX bit yeah, that's true. is the primary focus. That's really true. But it's funny because I think that a lot of people in the industry see uh, UI as like this big thing where it's like, no, no, UX is actually where the really big and complication, like there's mm. way more levels to UX and it's kind of being treated as the little sister sometimes where it is definitely, it's not even the big sister, it's the mama yeah. <laughs> or daddy or like whatever you want to call it. Um, the other thing with, with regards to if you're in a small business as a UX, so to come back to your, the model we were talking about earlier, is I, I imagine the exposure to learn and see other mindsets at work is is reduced heavily, and therefore you're going to be going into that second or third career role with much more of a focused mindset. Mm. Um, how do you think people who might have been down that path could recognise it in themselves? there are other mindsets and they're not exposing themselves enough to to what they may be come talk to us <laughs> you know, like, have a conversation yeah have a conversation uh, talk go to events reach out to other people talk to them about their roles um, just it's that perspective thing once again like read like read blogs whatever um, I think that's why I started my podcast, which is called YUX, because it was really, that podcast is really interviewing other people, like different designers, the everyday designers, the ones that you don't see on the stages, the ones that don't write the books, but are just everyday producing really great content and research or whatever. And that podcast is really about interviewing how people got into UX, what they do on a daily basis and what they see the future bringing. Again, to create that, like, transparency about the diversity that is within that field mm. and i think what i'm hearing from people is that they're resonating on different levels with different people and it's really nice that we don't have to be the same yeah. for, for uxs in product teams what are some of the things you, you could recommend that they do to increase their presence or increase their ability to practice some of what we've been talking about so far i would say uh Get, uh, get more of a business mindset. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I feel like the the universities teach very. Like they probably cover some business stuff. I don't know. I haven't been to university, but uh, from what I hear, it's a lot of very traditional. Like, yeah, you've got to cover the design. You've got to cover the research, and it's all about that the UX process, um, but not a lot about understanding how to build a business. And especially if you're in, in a startup, you need mm. to really understand that. And to get your ideas across in a product team, um, you need to get better at, at pitching, right? If you were a business owner and pitching to investors, right? Like you need to uh, talk the same language. Yeah. Right? This, this research, like I said before, with that example of how much development costs, like this research right now, if you're a researcher, like will trickle down and save money over here. Right, because we won't have to repeat work. It'll be very focused and directed. And if you're a conceptualizer, you know, just making sure that you speak the language of the business when you're a UX designer. Yeah. Okay. Completely agree. Yeah. I know from my time, uh, showing my age a little bit here, but it was graphic design back in the day, and mm. I remember for about eight weeks just tracing typography on a light box, 
repeatedly to learn the shapes and forms of letters and all the little serifs and everything. There was no commercial side to graphic design then. It was just just do the graphic design almost as as an order taker. Yeah. You know, you'll be yeah. given a, a brief from an advertising agency. You need to fulfil that brief, and there was no uh, conversation or education around why that design needs to be turned around in eight hours and what return on investment you're expecting out of that design mm. or any of those commercial conversations that would go with, yeah. back then, the graphic design element. Yeah, very true, very true. I think from my podcast, what I'm seeing is also that there is coming more of a shift that UX designers are getting a seat at the round table, at higher management. I think that is a really, really good place to seat UXers because they just have, a again, that holistic like view on things and yes then the better they become at speaking the business language and making people understand the value not only from the human side but also from the business side the better the stronger they are and the more they will be taken serious mm. i think that's a good point they're taking serious that you're mm. not just the yeah. design person yeah. at the table who gets to make things pretty you're yeah. having an impact um, to all, all, all of it exactly and there's like uh, in UX there's this like a uh, triple Venn diagram thing where it's like you know user needs technical con- uh, needs and business needs right and I feel like the, uni- the universities teach like find the user needs and the technical needs and the, the business needs need to, you need to understand those right mm. and how to represent those it isn't just about one voice yeah it's in the unity that we're really going to make impactful and good user experiences right yeah exactly a lot of people's career development comes down to their sort of annual planning that we've all had to do in the workplace of what you're going to do this year, your KPIs or whatever mm-hmm. um, it might be called now. Um, and quite often the, the measurement of success of people there um, is all around delivering a thing mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Um, getting something superficial or very sort of what I would call almost a, a vanity goal mm-hmm. out of the yep. way. Vanity metrics. How yeah. would you suggest... UX people write their goals for the next year that might be more focused on expanding their mindset to, when we think about expanding models? Uh, that's a really interesting question because we're just tackling that now as, as right. a company. Right? Okay. Um, there are, there's something called um, OKRs, which pr- yep. probably a lot of product people know about, um, objective and key results, and then there's KPIs. And I've been educating myself about them and uh, when I first thought of planning a roadmap for, you know, going forward, I was like, yeah, it's all about KPIs, KPIs, KPIs. And then I started, I started feeling like, hmm, it doesn't quite feel right for what, we're, what the style of work we, got, we have to do because it's hard to quantify something that doesn't exist yet, right, or attach a vanity metric. Mm. And after doing some research, I learned that the KPIs are a good to move a metric that already exists, right? So if you have members and a churn rate and you want to change that churn rate, like that's an easy KPI, right? But if you're doing a research project, you don't really, ha- there's no like vanity metric or yeah, KPI for that, yeah. right? Um, so that's when you turn to the OKRs, like the objective, right? The objective is to like uh, research, analyze and understand better our churned users or whatever. And then the, the key metrics are like conduct five interviews with this person, uh, do analysis and uh, make a presentation and a meeting to all of the company about the value of, of what you've discovered. Uh, and I think at that point, 
that gives that success metric, right? And you should feel proud of achieving all those things. And I think that OKR, if you think about, uh, if you're researching churned users, it is affecting that KPI of, of churn rate, right? Because you're, you're bringing understanding to it. It's just hard to say it's going to change it by 5%, right? It's hard, you can't really attach the two. But I think there is like, um, you should attach the two in an abstract kind of way, yep. right? Um, yeah, that would be my, my okay. advice around that. Brilliant. Fantastic. <laughs> I've really enjoyed talking through with you guys. Um, yeah. this, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much for yeah. inviting me down and having a chat. Thank yeah. you for having us. Yeah, and for, for those listening, the name of the community, again, what, what, what's the website address we can find out more information? cphx.com. Um, but I would say, like, right now, follow us on social media instead, yep. uh, where we are called CPHUX Official. Cool. Um, that's where you can get get a better sense of what we're up to and what we're doing, really. But again, it is really focused on Copenhagen. Nice. It's not focused about Melme or the cities around. It's really trying to, again... Make sure that when you come to Copenhagen, you get a sense. We want to be that light tower that people can go to and see, okay, here I can see what events are relevant. I can see what jobs are happening and, again, meet other designers and all that. Yeah, Fantastic. Fantastic. And the model, the mental or the mindset model you were talking about earlier, is it reach out to yourself, Helena? Yeah, right now there's uh, not really anything published. Uh, it's uh, still like our hidden little gem. Nice. That we were, not that it's not supposed to be, but we just haven't done it yet. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. All right, well, so if people reach out to you. Feel free direct. to reach out to and both Jane and I. Brilliant. Yeah, and, and if, you're in, um, if you're in Copenhagen and you are looking for a, a UX design job, we've actually just, if you check out our social media, um, we just uh, published a candidate uh, form uh, for people to fill out for us to actually be on the lookout nice. for them. Uh, so check us out there and sign up for that and we can Brilliant. have a chat. Brilliant. Nice, nice tip. Thanks yeah. very much, guys. Thank you. Thank a pleasure. You. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Product Coalition European Tour podcast. This was the first in Copenhagen. I've got a few more for you coming up. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes from the Product Coalition European Tour, please remember that they're all done and committed to raising awareness and funds for the bushfire affected communities, wildlife and volunteer firefighters in Australia. So if you'd like to support any of those causes, head over to bushfire.productcoalition.com and you can do so there. Thanks for listening. Until the next episode, goodbye.